Hello, everyone. Good afternoon and uh, good evening. Today and then for the next five days, it's our intention to have uh, talks that will be occurring that will give some orientation uh, for our practice in various ways. And suggestion is to listen to the talks as a kind of practice. So you may want to uh, in some ways stay present, might be to stay more connected to your body, and to especially just listen for what might be helpful. The talks are being recorded so that they'll be available um, after the retreat, maybe for the fine detail and so forth. Um, so this afternoon, this evening, I want to give a kind of orientation for our meta practice, for the kind of intensive training that we're beginning in the practice of metta and the development of what we might call the kind heart. And it's helpful to me to, to ask me right away, I can see the people just on my screen, how many of you have done a meta retreat before? So it looks like about half on my screen. And so I'll, I'll assume that that's uh, the case for others as well. So some of us have done meta retreats and some of us have, have not yet. How many people have a regular meta practice? Again, that looks like somewhere around half to a little bit more. So I'd like to give some overview of this practice, what is, as it were, the big picture about what we're doing, as well as point to some of the challenges that can come up when we do metta practice, and some of the ways that we can respond to those challenges, and in fact that we could see those responses as pointing to the main ways that metta practice really uh, is transformative. The way that practicing metta uh, transforms us really in all the parts of our lives. That's the potential. So maybe good to say, first of all, that the word uh, metta itself is connected in the etymology with words that uh, connote uh, friendship and a kind of uh, mm, quality that we would have in, in friends. And I think uh, traditionally, before probably before the last hundred years or so, uh, friendship was probably more central in most cultures. You know, like the center, you know, I think in much of Western culture has been more the romantic couple, but friendship was, I think, in many cultures much more central. So it has a, I think, a special quality. And we could think of meta practice as cultivating a kind of warm, expansive friendliness. Uh, my, my colleague, our colleague, uh, Anushka Fernanda Pola, 
She has a nice phrase. She says that metta is unstoppable friendliness. How would you like to have more unstoppable friendliness? Yes, that's what we're that's what we're cultivating. And and so the even the term loving kindness feels a little awkward. It really is the sense of warmth, goodwill, uh, friendliness that we're bringing forward. And the, uh, the practice of metta is both very very simple and quite radical. It's basically a practice where we are inclining towards that unstoppable friendliness moment by moment. The practice is really a practice of cultivating the intention to move towards warmth, to move towards kindness. And in that way, it's a kind of a training because we keep on with that intention repeated over and over again, moment by moment, for the entirety of our retreat and then beyond. And so we incline continually towards that warmth, that friendliness. But then, guess what? Does the friendliness always appear when we have those intentions? No. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. So in a way we cultivate really two core capacities. One is the continual returning to the intention of kindness, of warmth, of that uh, expansive friendliness. And then the second is we see what gets in the way. We see what uh, comes up when we have that inclination, when we have that intention, and a lot comes up, and I'll talk, I'll talk later about some of the details, but a lot comes up, and so sometimes we speak of metta practice as in part being a practice of purification you know, or transformation, where we partly see what comes up. So if this is your first retreat, I have to tell you, it's very likely that you won't be, for the entire retreat, hanging out in bliss and kindness all the time. Anyone wants your money back? I don't know. It probably is too late. <laughs> but the, uh, but that, that's some of the time we'll notice what gets in the way, and some of the time we'll connect the uh, sense of that warmth and friendliness will arise. And so we could think of what we're doing as a training. It's a training really in both of those capacities to incline more and more in the direction of warmth, kindness, friendliness, and then to work with what comes up, to work with what we, to work with what we find. It's also a very, very ancient vocation that we're following. You know, very much like uh, Kyra Jewell was saying, we really are based in, um, we might say, our spiritual ancestors who have cultivated this training. So this training is something that was first articulated by the Buddha 2,600 years ago, but actually the trainings in opening the heart 
were actually part of what the Buddha inherited from the India of his time. He didn't invent metta, actually. The, the practices of the awakened heart were part of his own inheritance that he worked with, you know, modified in his own ways. So it's a very, very ancient tradition that we're, that we're working with. I, I thought I'd read a few words from the main discourse on metta. This is from the Metta Sutta, and we have a, a copy of this in the resource um, compilation. This isn't the whole text, but just a few of the lines. And, and you can have maybe a sense of this, what I'm calling an ancient vocation. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness, and who knows the path of peace. And it goes on a little later, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. So with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness, over the entire world. There's another beautiful passage that uh, comes from one of the early Buddhist nuns, probably from a few hundred years after the time of the Buddha. This is a, a poem that's been uh, recently uh, translated or retranslated. Uh, it's a book, a very beautiful book called The First Free Women, Poems of the Early Buddhist Nuns. And this is really outlining uh, metta practice really is a kind of path, a path of uh, freedom. Full of trust, you left home and soon learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed this path of friendship to its end, and I can say with absolute certainty, it will take you home. And so this vocation of kindness is transmitted in the Buddhist tradition, but it's also found in so many other traditions, so many other approaches. Uh, Mark Twain says, kindness is the language that the blind can see and the deaf can hear. And we find, uh, again, this uh, same centrality of kindness or sometimes talked about as love in so many approaches. So in the Jewish tradition, in the Talmud, it says the highest form of wisdom is kindness. The highest form of wisdom is kindness. And from uh, one of the uh, ancient Jewish mystical texts from the 
uh, 13th century called the Zohar. The world should be built, shall be built on love. By this the world endures. Now many of you know from the uh, Christian Bible, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs, love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always persevere. It never fails. Or another one from the Christian tradition, from uh, the Christian contemplative uh, Thomas Merton. Our job is to love others without stopping to inquire whether or not they are worthy. That is not our business, and in fact it is nobody's business. What we are asked to do is to love and thus and this love itself will render both ourselves and our neighbor, neighbors worthy. And from the Islamic tradition, some of the one uh, reading from the sayings of, of the prophet, the prophet said, shall I not te tell you of something which if you do it, you will love one another? Spread the greetings of peace among yourselves. And then from uh, Rumi, the uh, Sufi poet, love is the water of life, drink it down with heart and soul. And I'll give one more passage. Uh, this is from Dr. King. And many of you know that uh, our retreat almost always includes the birthday of Dr. King. And our last full day, January 15th, is the uh, birthday of Dr. King. And of course, most of us know that for him also, what he called love was central. He said, this call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all people. This oft misunderstood and misunder misinterpreted concept, so readily dismissed as a weak and cowardly force, has now become an, become an absolute necessity for the survival of humanity. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I am speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. And so we're doing this training very much in a way um, resonating with so many of the great uh, teachers, sages, and peacemakers who have walked the earth. And, you know, as we noted in the... Um, orientation session, our first session, we're doing this practice at a time of crisis. And it's actually a time of multiple crises, I think, as, as we know. You know, we have the, of course, the pandemic. We have the 
crisis of racial justice, the crisis of economic justice, um, an ongoing, really, a crisis of democracy, which was heightened in many ways just a few days ago. We have the climate emergency. And that's just to mention probably the main ones that are on our mind. And here we are in a retreat. What are we doing? Here we are in a retreat, and how how does that how does that uh, connect with our understanding of these crises? And I think it's helpful to be in the retreat with an with an understanding of a few things. Uh, first is that actually we can see that the problems of the world, the crises, if we will, are not just outer affairs, but they also concern um, the manifestation of our inner lives. You know, the, from the 8th century, one of the great uh, Buddhist teachers and writers, Shanti Davis, said, this world is disturbed with insanity due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. Does that resonate? Disturbed due to the exertions of those who are confused about themselves. So there is a strong inner component to, as it were, the outer manifestations. And I was, I was thinking just uh, earlier today of, the, um, of a song that probably some of us know, probably many of us know, People know, how many of you know the song called by Leonard Cohen called Democracy? Okay, it has the lines in it. Um, Democracy is coming to the USA. So, so I hope this isn't too narrow for our friends in other countries. And actually, Leonard Cohen was from Canada. But here, but here, here are a few lines that really occurred to me. Um, Democracy is coming to the USA, to the shores of need, past the reefs of greed, through the squalls of hate. It's coming to America first, the cradle of the best and the worst. And it's here the lonely say that the heart has got to open in a fundamental way. The heart has got to open in a fundamental way. So I think that's getting at this really the inner roots of, of the crises. So we need, in that sense, both inner transformative work and outer response and action. And another, another perspective is that actually to keep going and, be, and sustain ourselves, we really need this cycle I find, as someone who's been a, a sometime activist, we need cycles of inner nourishment and exploration with outer response and action. And I was thinking of the British historian Arnold Toynbee said, at the center of cultural creativity, there are cycles of withdrawal and return. And that's what we're doing. That we are in a way 
going more inward so that in whatever the way that we are in the world, we can bring more metta in this case, a transformed self, as it were, out into the world. And I think these going back and forth between the inner and the outer in this way, and these cycles of going more inward and going more outward really helps us to sustain ourselves for the long haul. So the actual practice of metta will explore more in terms of the technique, uh, which most of you know, we'll explore that uh, tomorrow morning in the morning instructions. And as probably most of us know that our main practice is the uh, internal silent repetition of phrases that tend to evoke a sense of warmth, goodwill, and kindness, and that we continually do that. There are some other techniques for practicing metta. Uh, we'll be introducing one on Tuesday that's a little more body-based, which is sometimes called radiating metta, a little more energetic and body-based. Our main form, though, is the internal silent repetition of phrases and that we do in our formal practice and we can bring that also into our walking, our movement during our activities during the day and so forth. And what we're doing initially though through to uh, 8.30 Pacific tomorrow morning is we're really grounding and being more present. You know, and as uh, everyone who's worked with Sylvia Borstein knows, one of the ways that Sylvia has really emphasized uh, the heart of metta is to show its connection with being present and with mindfulness. So it's been really right at the center of the way we've done metta retreats for a lot of years. That, um, you know, on the surface, the techniques for mindfulness and the techniques for metta are different, but as they both become more mature, they tend to merge. Sylvia has a very wonderful phrase that expresses this. She says, may I meet each moment fully. May I meet each moment as a friend. May I meet each moment fully. May I meet each moment as a friend. Do you hear that? connection of the mindfulness and the metta, you know, so that we, um, as we're doing metta, we'll need the mindfulness to let us know when we're distracted so we can come back, you know, and as we do mindfulness, we need the kindness, the warmth to be with ourselves, to meet whatever is coming up. And so we're wanting in the, in the sessions up until tomorrow morning to, as Jeff was guiding us, to keep coming back to being present, keep arriving, keep being grounded in our body, our breath, or whatever we focus on it helps us to um, be more present. And so we'll be, we'll be working with that. And as, as I mentioned, when we get to the meta practice, it's really a way that we intend to move towards metta through using phrases. May 
I be happy, may I be safe. And we, through the phrases, we incline in that direction. And again, we let be whatever happens. And so we're very crucial to know that metta practice is an intention practice more than what we might call a production practice. We're not saying, I will produce loving kindness. We're rather inclining in the direction and then we let whatever happens happen. Really crucial point. And so we can practice in different ways. We can practice with the phrases in our formal meditation. We can, you know, if it resonates with us, we can do sometimes do the radiating metta, which is more like letting the energy of the heart radiate outward in space. And we can also find ways to bring metta into our uh, time away from our sessions together and our time with others, our um, just doing our cooking or our cleaning up or whatever, that we can really just try to bring that sense of warmth and kindness. And I was thinking of a, a practice which uh, uh, I developed with a person I was working with uh, several years ago. And she did this practice for a whole month retreat. And the practice was to ask moment by moment, what is the kind thing to do? You may want to bring that into your informal time. Just keep asking, what's the kind thing to do? Stop, pause. What's the kind thing to do right now? You know, I'm... Uh, I'm a little tired. I'm kind of pushing myself. I have a little time. What's the kind thing to do? A nap. Okay. So a meta nap. And so it's really to, uh, that could be a practice that resonates with you. Keep asking what's the kind thing to do. Put it on your refrigerator or on your walls and so forth. So Maybe one further thing to say in general about metta is that what, the, what we learn from the tradition is that the metta practice works in sort of summoning our warmth and kindness. And the claim is, what the teachers tell us, is that this is because metta isn't something that we produce so much as something that we discover is already there in our deeper being. That our deeper being has this quality of metta. The Buddha talked about it as the brightly shining quality of mind and heart and linked it with metta. And it says it's there in everyone, but it gets covered over. Even in those who do unskillful things, beneath in them is this brightly shining quality that when we touch it more and more, it radiates out, it opens up. And it's said that when we have deepened in our meta practice, that we shine and glow and radiate like the sun and the moon. Another metaphor used is that this is always there like the sun, but it gets covered over by clouds. And so our practice is to keep thinning the clouds. I want to also mention and, and explore for the rest of the talk 
the fact that there are challenges to meta practice. Things will come up. Some of them were mentioned by Jeff. I'm going to mention a few of these and then point to some of the ways that they can be transformed. And <clears throat> I think we'll also continue to explore tomorrow some of the challenges. So one challenge, of course, is that we sometimes are distracted. Our minds go to past and future. And we come from a culture which is often very distracted. You know, even some of our technology is programmed to be addictive and to distract us. So we, you know, we have, um, we have these tendencies to distraction. That can make the meta practice harder. A second is that we can, especially in the beginning of a retreat, we can become sleepy. Sometimes from, you know, a backlog from the last week or two. Sometimes from the energy being a little unbalanced. We can also be uh, restless. Sometimes there's too much energy. So some of these things we can work out in the first few days. You know, some of us have challenges in actually accessing the heart, accessing the kind heart. That uh, that can be an issue, whether because of our conditioning, you know, that uh, uh, I know for myself, I think there was, uh, I think some of it was conditioning around becoming a, a boy and a man when I was growing up that um, even expressing my emotions was not something I was either trained to do or encouraged to do. And so accessing the kind heart was something that I had to, in a way, learn and develop more, more later. So there can, for some of us, be uh, reasons that the heart is hard to access. There can be wounds there, even, even trauma. And so that can be one of the reasons why it's hard to access the uh, heart, hard to access metta. Another challenge can be that there is, um, you know, at different times we have different forms of reactivity. We can have grasping for some things, pushing away certain things. We can be judgmental of ourselves, of others, of the teachers, you know, of whatever, you know, of, and we can be, we can be focused there, judgmental of others, and we can be uh, kind of caught in that reactivity. It makes accessing the heart very hard. And then lastly, there can sometimes be confusion or doubt. And so I want to mention and talk briefly about a few ways that we work with this. Again, we'll, we'll continue to explore this uh, uh, tomorrow and actually throughout the whole retreat. So one of the ways we become less distracted is with that in doing metta practice. And I'll talk about each of these briefly. We develop more concentration we become less distracted. We also learn better to access the heart and really, in a way, uh, the language I like to use is we learn to lead with the heart. We learn to uh, access our hearts more easily and have the hearts be more, our hearts be more present. We also learn better how to work with what gets in the way of the, the wise heart, the kind heart. We can work with some of the material that comes up, you know, in that process that I was using the word purification for. 
you know, as we go further, we also integrate the mind and the heart and our bodies with metta. We touch increasingly our, our deeper nature, you know, our, that more radiant nature. And then we learn more and more how to bring it out into the world. So I want to talk briefly about each of those. And that can really point to the way that uh, learning and transformation occur in the process of training to do metta. So the first of these is that part of what uh, we do with metta practice is that we develop uh, more concentration. We bring the mind together. What we actually are doing, and we'll especially do this starting tomorrow, is that we are actually coming back to that intention for warmth, kindness, friendliness, increasingly uh, moment by moment. That we have just, um, we really just have one thing that we're doing in this retreat. And that's inclining towards metta. We'll do it in a few different ways. There's some different techniques. But basically, that's all we're doing. You know, that we're, we're having this quality of uh, really simplicity, which is, can be quite beautiful. We're not doing a lot of things. We're cultivating metta. That's it. And we're doing that moment by moment. And in our formal meditation, we'll be doing that, particularly through the uh, phrases for metta, in our, what we call our informal time, away from our time together, we can keep on asking, what's the kind thing to do? How can I, how can I um, cultivate metta now? We'll do it in a relaxed way. And so the development of concentration happens naturally with metta practice, and it can go against the tendencies to distraction, also towards sleepiness and in even restlessness and it's really a kind of maybe a better word I, I don't like the word concentration so much because it it often can apply a kind of effort and tension and you know other words that we might use is that we we gather our energies together with focus we uh, have a kind of unification of our being around the intention to be kind, to be to be warm, and we um, we keep on cultivating that. We can really have the warmth get, as it were, warmer as we focus more, as we're able more to stay with it. There was a Russian Orthodox teacher of the 19th century named Theophane who said. Dispersal of attention, dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. Dispersal of attention diminishes warmth. And so there's this link between the ability to stay with the metta and the, the deepening of concentration. And as that happens, we can feel more settledness, more, more ease, more relaxation, more stillness. And we will th I'll talk more about this tomorrow morning, but we also learn how to concentrate with relaxation. We learn how to bring our practice to continually doing the same thing, but with a sense of ease. That be that's kind of part of the art form of metapractice, not too tight, not too loose.
And then secondly, we, this is another way in which we learn and train and transform with meta practice. We learn better how to, in, in my own language, lead with our hearts. And again, many of us were trained originally not to lead with our hearts. I think I was trained to lead with my thinking. Right? And how many can relate to that? Probably a lot of us, right? And so, again, it can take a, a training to have that sense of uh, leading with the heart, uh, be there more. You know, and, and again, for me, it was even though I knew that I had a, a good heart, I would, you know, in high school, I would sometimes cry at driver ed movies. So I knew something was there, <laughs> right? But uh, but it took some time, right? It was sometimes hard, you know. And so uh, we learn better how to um, have the heart be there in moment-to-moment life and lead with it and be present. Be present uh, with ourselves, for others in that way. And maybe just to say that... Um, when we talk about leading with the heart, we're really talking about doing whatever is wise and skillful in the moment. That one maybe misunderstanding about metta is thinking that it's about being nice. And it's really, it really, it relates to a lot of what uh, actually Dr. King said about love, that it actually can be very firm and powerful. And so metta also is that inclination towards kindness, but it's applicable sometimes when we have to say things that the other person doesn't want to hear or respond in a difficult situation or act for social justice. We can do so in the spirit of metta. So it's very, I think, very important to say that right at the beginning. Metta is not about being nicey-nice. That's a misunderstanding. Really, really important. And then a third way that we train is that, again, we work with um, what comes up that's challenging. We work with uh, different forms of reactivity, difficult emotions. You know, sometimes when we do a retreat, we find that something is waiting for us. Anyone done retreats and sort of found something unexpected that was waiting for you that you needed to deal with? Anyone experience that, I think it's quite common. So we want to have that openness. Be a little careful with the idea that I know how this retreat is going to go. And be open to what comes up. Sometimes we may have some sadness or, or grief that hasn't been processed. Some anger. Some rage. And we may also find things coming up in just in our practice, some anxiety, some sadness, difficult experiences. We might find wanting. We might find longing. And so we can work with all these as we do meta practice. You know, the general guideline is that if they're just there for a few moments, we can come back to our meta practice. If they last for a while, we can really be present with them, especially using our mindfulness. I'll say more about that uh, again tomorrow morning. So we can open to that. One of the, we can open to these um, forms of reactivity. One of the most challenging ones 
is what I, what I uh, call the judgmental mind. We may find that towards ourselves, again, towards others. And it's really important to um, attend, attend to that, notice it. And um, there are ways of working with it. Maybe, maybe we'll talk more about that. But metta is a very beautiful way to work with it, to work with the uh, tendencies to be judgmental towards self or others. Uh, mindfulness is also very important just to notice that it's happening. <clears throat> and what I have found in my own personal work with this, my own inner work, and then working for about the last 20 years with people on the theme of working with the judgmental mind is that our most regular forms of the judgmental mind are actually typically driven by unacknowledged uh, pain or unprocessed pain. And so sometimes what we need to do is to touch that pain that even is beneath the judgmental mind or beneath the reactivity. And again, maybe I'll say a little bit more about that tomorrow morning. There, there's a nice line from uh, James Baldwin. He says, I imagine one of the reasons that people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they sense once hate is gone, they will be forced to deal with pain. To me, that goes a long way towards understanding Wednesday, to be honest. We could take the rest of the time on that one, but I'll, I'll just let that pass briefly. And so, yeah, we can, we, will, we can find things in the mind. Sometimes we find knots in the body. You know, there's a lot of ways that there is a purification, really, of the heart, of the mind, of the body that occurs in our practice. As we do this, a fourth quality I want to name, there is a um, increasing way that we connect our minds and hearts and bodies. And we know that these are often separated in our culture, you know, and have been separated in many ways for quite a few hundred years, right? Most probably, how many, how many of us got real significant emotional education in school, right? I didn't. There's an emphasis on the cognitive, right? Which, which you know, is, is valuable, but it's, you know, we, we tend to be split in those ways. And metapractice can help us to unify ourselves, unify the different parts of our being. You know, partly as we do what Sylvia was inviting us to do. May I meet this moment fully? May I meet it as a friend? Connecting the mindfulness and the metta. Again, on the surface, they can look different. They can look like different techniques. But we want to really, in the long run, bring them together and find ways that the, uh, the metta also is very connected with our, with our wisdom, with our, with our um, quality of seeing clearly. You know, in, in the Buddhist tradition, it's often said that the heart of our practice is to connect wisdom, really, we might say, with the awakened heart. That's a way to talk about what our practice is. That's actually very traditional. Sometimes talked about as the connection of wisdom and compassion, or sometimes said 
that uh, the Dharma or the teachings, teachings of liberation are like a bird that has two wings, wisdom and compassion. And so we want to bring those together. And it's, um, that's something, it's just something to be aware of, that that's part of the horizon of our practice. That we, um, you know, the Buddha said at the, near the end of the Metta Sutta, freed from hatred and no will, not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one has clarity of vision. There's that linkage. Now, I'll bring in another passage from uh, Dr. King. This is from some of you know, Letters from a Birmingham Jail, where he, you know, with the em this very strong emphasis on love and kindness, there's also the focus on uh, understanding interconnection. And again, very, very similar to Buddhist practice. He says, uh, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality that is a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. So as we do these practices, as we transform in these ways, we increasingly have moments where we touch our own kindness, our own love, our own inner radiance. You know, uh, we touch that inner luminosity, which is talked about in the, in the tradition. This is, uh, this is a passage from uh, Thomas Merton, again, the uh, uh, Christian Trappist monk who lived at a monastery in um, Kentucky. I actually... Prior to the pandemic, I visit that monastery every year and have uh, spent time there. And uh, Merton's been important to me. I actually lived in Kentucky for four years and would go out to the monastery about every six weeks or so. And I've stayed in touch with uh, uh, particularly one of the monks who's like a little bit the name of Brother Paul Quinon, who's also like Merton, a poet and a writer and been very active with Buddhist Christian uh, uh, connections. So this is this is an experience that Merton had. Uh, I think after going to the dentist in Louisville, he left the monastery. I don't think it was laughing gas, but I don't think that's the case. But anyway, he, here's what he said: In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all these people that they were mine and theirs, that we could not be alien to one another, even though we were total strangers. I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts. The depths of their hearts were neither sin nor desire nor self-knowledge can reach the core of their reality. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way all the time. There would be no more war, no more hatred, no more cruelty, no more greed. 
I suppose the big problem would be that would be we would be continually bowing to each other. And then the last thing I wanted to mention is that we, as we practice, as we train, we also learn more and more ways to bring the meta practice into our being in the world. And here we'll have the good fortune to continually do that on a daily basis in terms of what we're calling a more informal practice. But we also can bring it into, uh, over time, our work, our communities, our, our actions in the world. And so we, we learn how to do that. We learn better and better how to do that. We learn how to find ways to have the spirit of metta come into the world. You know, and again, we can be inspired by people like Dr. King. Um, Gandhi said, belief in nonviolence is based on the assumption that human nature in its essence is one and therefore unfailingly responds to the advances of love. And so to do this, we really need to bring all of these other aspects of the training to bring the metta into our action in the world. We need to learn better that quality of concentration. We need to be able to lead with our hearts more, to do the inner purification work, to do the inner transformative work, to connect our, our minds and our hearts and our bodies to at times touch our depths. And that can help us to bring this out into the world. You know, a great Tibetan teacher said, Shabkar, who lived at the end of the, uh, the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, said, let your life and practice be one. And so I'll close with another uh, really another time reading this poem from one of the early Buddhist nuns, uh, Mita. I'll end with this. Full of trust, you left home, and soon you learned to walk the path, making yourself a friend to everyone and making everyone a friend. When the whole world is your friend, Fear will find no place to call home. And when you make the mind your friend, you'll know what trust really means. Listen, I have followed the path, this path of friendship to its end. And I can say with absolute certainty, it will lead you home. Let's just sit quietly for a few moments. You can let whatever is may have been helpful or whatever was uh, arising for you that may be helpful, just to bring that to mind.
So I want to thank you for your uh, very kind attention. And we have now a period of a little over um, an hour and a half. For some of us, this will be the time when we have uh, supper. And so let me invite again, as I did earlier, just reflect for a few moments. What is the next hour and a half like for me? And how can I let this be continuous with my practice here at the retreat? And again, our emphasis initially is just arriving, being present. What's the next period of time look like for me? And how can I bring this into my practice? So again, thanks again for your attention, and we'll come back a little over 90 minutes from now, and hopefully this can, can work. Uh, I know there are some people on the East Coast, so it's getting a little bit late, but um, if that works for you, we'll see you then, and otherwise we'll, we'll all, uh, those, yeah, many of us will gather at 7 p.m. Pacific, so see you then. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.